Welcome to the podcast. On June 23rd, 2022, the United States Supreme Court released its Bruin decision, ruling that the ability to carry a pistol in public was a constitutional right under the Second Amendment. But the Bruin court went further than just the outcome of the case. Bruin set an entirely new standard the federal courts are to use when deciding cases involving the right to keep and bear arms. Although it has only been a year since the court released the decision, Bruin is already changing the legal landscape in terms of federal court decisions in cases involving the right to keep and bear arms. As you'll see, the impact has been profound. Some Americans will be thrilled, others will be beside themselves. The Dr. Reality Vodcast with Dave Champion. Let's start with this. I'm going to keep this brief because it isn't my goal today to discuss every firearms-related case since Bruin was decided. I simply believe we've reached a point where a pattern is emerging and people might care to know in what direction the decisions are heading. When Bruin was released, I began telling my audience that the decision was essentially a death knell for the vast majority of gun control laws across the United States. It wasn't just that the court struck down New York State's may-issue concealed carry permit scheme. It was that in doing so, the court also established a new test for lower courts to use when considering whether a state or federal statute violates the right to keep and bear arms and is thus unconstitutional. I dubbed that the Bruin test. The pre-Bruin test in most firearms-related cases pivoted on the vague notion of public good, which is, of course, absurd, because you could light up 10 federal judges and ask them to explain public good relating to firearms and get 10 different answers. The public good standard was an absurd paradigm because our inalienable rights are never to be ruled upon by a court on the basis of the personal opinion of an individual judge or even a group of judges. I think we can all agree that no matter which unalienable right is being considered by a court, individual personal opinions of judges isn't the correct standard. In fact, it's not really a standard at all. Allowing judges to rule based on their personal opinions creates an impermissible judicial free-for-all. Bruin put an end to that by establishing a new, different standard. Before I get into the new standard established by Bruin, you should know Bruin didn't just suddenly pop up out of nowhere. Bruin is part of the lineage that began with the Supreme Court's Heller decision in 2008 and the McDonald decision in 2010. So, what is the Bruin test? It is essentially this. In Bruin, the court said the right to keep and bear arms had a discernible meaning and character at the time the founders ratified the Bill of Rights, and therefore, that meaning and character is what defines that right today. In short, the court said the views of the founding generation concerning the ownership and carrying of arms of any type, which includes firearms, are constitutionally fixed by consideration of how the founders would have viewed legislation impacting a citizen's right to keep and bear arms. To be clear, the court's ruling was a complete repudiation of the living constitution theory. There are two camps on constitutional interpretation. One is the 
originalist view, holding the documents mean exactly what the men who wrote it intended when they wrote the words and the states ratified those words. The originalist model also seeks to identify the principles of liberty and good governance behind the Constitution's wording and carry those principles forward into our modern circumstances. An example of that would be the principle of freedom of the press. It exists just as much today when we employ computers, super high-speed industrial printing, or an online digital presence as when cutting-edge technology was a hand-cranked wooden printing press. The other model is the living document theory, which takes the view that in order for the Constitution to be durable over the long haul, the original meaning of the founders must give way to new interpretations based on the circumstances of modern society. As I'm speaking with you today, I'm 63 years old, and I've only ever seen the living document model advanced with two goals intended. One is to alter the form of the federal government from a representative democracy to some other form. The second is to do away with certain rights belonging to we the people or substantially truncate them. In my opinion, the living document model is despicable. Here's why. If people want to change the form of the federal government, Okay, the Constitution contains a means of doing exactly that. It's called the amendment process. The Constitution literally contains instructions about how we the people can alter anything we want in the Constitution. A proposed amendment requires ratification by two-thirds of the states to become part of the Constitution. So, for simplicity of illustration, if we say the population of all states is equal, then at this moment in time, it would require 222,500,000 Americans to agree that making a particular modification to the Constitution is what we want. By contrast, those who support the living document model seek to reduce the number of Americans needed to make a change from 220,500,000 to only the nine Supreme Court justices, or more accurately, five of the nine justices. Basically, they're looking to overthrow the U.S. Constitution by judicial fiat. The other reason I find the living document model despicable is the Founding Fathers were crystal clear that the government is not the source of our rights. In the earliest days of our nation, the Supreme Court held that our rights existed antecedent to the formation of the states or the federal government, therefore the states and the federal government have no authority to alter or abolish those rights. Yet the goal of those who support the living document model is to eradicate or severely truncate rights they don't like and don't want you exercising. And again, in a nation of 334 million people, they want just five people to eradicate or truncate your rights. Understanding the difference between the originalist model and the living document model, and that the court has thoroughly repudiated the living document model, let's return to Bruin and the direction the federal courts are taking as they apply the Bruin test. A moment ago, I said that Bruin declared the meaning of the right to keep and bear arms constitutionally fixed by considering how the founders would have viewed firearms legislation. As you might imagine, it would have been rare for the founders to see laws restricting the ownership or carrying of arms as being permissible. Before I get into how the Bruin test is impacting federal court decisions, let me be clear that while Bruin certainly firmly pushes the needle away from restrictions of most sorts, people should not imagine that every gun law in the books is going to be declared unconstitutional under Bruin. Examples of issues that will have to play out in the courts before we know where the boundaries are under Bruin are things like restricting the carrying of firearms in, quote, sensitive places. In a twist of irony, I have no doubt the Supreme Court will uphold such restrictions when applied to courthouses. 
How about federal licensing of suppressors and short-barreled rifles? What about the federal statute that restricts Americans from owning any weapon capable of firing in the fully automatic mode if manufactured after 1986? These are issues that will almost certainly be settled by the Supreme Court, or perhaps by consensus of the appellate courts. I think it important to note that in Bruin, the six justices who decided in favor of the plaintiff were actually fixing a structural flaw in federal court reasoning. By that, I mean those six justices recognized the growing inclination for judges to decide cases based on their personal opinions to be an egregious flaw that had to be stamped out. Bruin made it crystal clear that every one of the 861 Article III judges in the United States, as well as the couple of thousand Article I judges and judges of the possessions and territories, that courts deciding the rights of people based on the malleable notion of public good is no longer permissible. This also isn't the first time this court has made a decision to correct a structural flaw in judicial reasoning. Remember Dobbs, the decision that reversed Roe v. Wade? You may find this surprising, but that decision was not as much about abortion as it was the court correcting a flawed precedent concerning the 14th Amendment. About nine months ago, I did a presentation in which I detailed the exact nature of the flawed 14th Amendment precedent the court was reversing in Dobbs. I'll put a link to it in the notes. If you educate yourself on both Dobbs and Bruin, you'll begin to see where this is all going and why. Now, Let's take a look at decisions made under the new Bruin test. We'll start with the most recent decision. On May 10th, 2023, a federal judge struck down the federal regulation that prohibited selling handguns to those who are 18 or older, but have not yet turned 21. U.S. District Judge Robert Payne of the Eastern District of Virginia said that under the Bruin test, the federal regulation runs afoul of the Second Amendment. In his decision, Judge Payne stated the following, quote, if the court were to exclude 18 to 21-year-olds from the Second Amendment's protection, it would impose limitations on the Second Amendment that do not exist for any other constitutional guarantees. The government has not presented any evidence of age-based restrictions on the purchase or sale of firearms from the colonial era, founding, or the early republic. Close quote. I believe we could all see from the judge's remarks the effects of applying the Bruin test. Before we move on to other rulings, I should mention that in March 2023, the 11th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals upheld a Florida law that raised the minimum age to purchase a firearm from 18 to 21. So, at this point, we have a trial court in the 4th Circuit ruling one way, and the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals ruling the exact opposite. Two federal decisions with the exact opposite holding increase the odds significantly that the matter will be heard by the United States Supreme Court. This is part of the process I mentioned earlier, in which we'll have to see where the Supreme Court eventually fixes the boundary markers under Bruin. It should be noted that the two cases are not identical, because the Virginia decision addresses a federal law, while the 11th Circuit addresses a Florida state law. Yet, the most interesting distinction is the Virginia court based its decision on looking at the colonial era, the founding era, and the earliest days of the nation, while the 11th Circuit based its decision on a law restricting the age of firearms ownership that was enacted in the year shortly after the Civil War. While I doubt that in Bruin, the Supreme Court was including the views of politicians almost 100 years after American independence, we'll have to wait for the court to address these decisional disparities before we know the answer for certain.
Other decisions that resulted from applying the Bruin test were finding unconstitutional a federal law prohibiting people who use marijuana from owning firearms, a federal ban on possessing a gun with its serial number removed, and striking down the federal restriction barring people from possessing guns if they have a domestic violence restraining order in force against them. The federal prohibition of firearms ownership because a person smokes weed has been inane since the day it went into effect. The idea that a person who drinks a fifth of whiskey every night is good to go to own a firearm while a person who takes a bong hit after work can't is the poster child for how irrational and illogical are government firearms restrictions. Serial numbers are the foundation of the entire federal firearms regulation scheme. Without serial numbers on firearms, most federal firearms regulations would, on a practical level, cease to be enforceable. So a decision that a requirement to have a serial number on a firearms is unconstitutional changes the landscape significantly. As an aside, I'll put a link in the notes to a treatise that lays out the legal reality that virtually all federal firearms laws are only territorial in nature and do not constitutionally apply in the states of the Union. The Fifth Circuit decision that struck down the domestic violence restraining order restriction is being appealed by the Biden administration, so we'll have to see how that plays out. A case to keep an eye on is a petition to the Supreme Court concerning a Chicago law that bans so-called assault rifles and inaptly named high-capacity magazines. In February 2023, a federal judge in Chicago ruled the law was constitutional under the Bruin test, and then the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals declined to block the law while the case works its way up the judicial food chain. I've tried to keep my personal sentiments out of this presentation, mostly, but at this point I have to say that the idea of banning modern semi-automatic rifles and the magazines originally designed for them, that it could pass the Bruin test, is clearly agendized rubbish. As plainly stated in the Heller decision, one of the several purposes of the right to keep and bear arms is for citizens to have the tools at their disposal to remove the government by force if things reach that point. That can only be accomplished with the public owning rifles that are, at least somewhat, in the same class as those possessed by the government. The Supreme Court validated principle that one of the reasons for the right to possess arms is to remove the government by force, if necessary, is why I believe Bruin should ultimately strike down the federal prohibition against Americans owning fully automatic rifles manufactured after 1986. In short, under the Second Amendment, when it comes to personal arms, if the government has them, then the people must be free to have them as well. Perhaps the oddest complaint about the Bruin test has come from a couple judges whining that they're now going to have to become history experts. Let me be blunt. That's complete horseshit. <laughs> First, the responsibility lies with the opposing parties to submit the relevant history to the court that each side believes supports their argument. In other words, all the court need do is the limited amount of research needed to determine which version of historical events is factual, the version submitted by the plaintiff or the version submitted by the defense. Further, a good deal of the historical research relevant to the ownership and carrying of firearms has already been done in the 40-page history of the right to keep and bear arms contained in the Supreme Court's Heller decision. Further, when courts are called upon to hear cases involving, as an example, technology, we don't hear the courts whining about needing to become tech experts to rule on a tech-based controversy before the court. In such cases, the judge considers the explanation of the technology provided by the plaintiff and the defense does a bit of independent research, if necessary, and issues his or her decision, without whining. So, 
Why are a couple of judges whining about the Bruin test? I think it's readily apparent that what they actually don't like is that Bruin took away their prerogative to make decisions on the right to keep and bear arms based on their personal opinion. Since they're now being held to an actual standard, they're complaining about it. I think the direction Bruin is taking in the country in terms of gun control laws is clear. Most of those laws will be going away. I believe one of the most significant outcomes of those changes will be that virtually any American who wants to carry a firearm will be able to do so without government interference. I see that as a positive because government has never been able to stop violent crime. When I was working patrol back in my law enforcement days, the occasions I was present when an act of violence kicked off and was able to prevent the violence from being visited upon the intended victim or victims was very close to never. 99.9% of the time, cops show up after the violence has taken place. Since government is powerless to stop violence against you or anyone else, who do you think is, in reality, responsible for stopping a person when he attempts to commit illegal violence? No one is free to commit an act of illegal violence when I'm present. Why is that? Because I have experience in such matters, have trained in the skills to stop it, carry a firearm every day, and here's the important part. Are you ready? I consider it my duty as an American to stop illegal violence in my community. Now, pay careful attention to this next part. If the government can't stop violence has never been able to stop it, and never will be able to stop it. If I don't stop it, who will? And if I'm not there, but you are, you should be doing the job. Are you getting the point? I've been in the use of force game basically since my early teens. I chased my first armed robber down the sidewalk when I was 14. I was going to catch him and beat his ass for sticking a gun in my face and the faces of my coworkers. Unfortunately, he dove headfirst into a waiting car and got away. However, a few weeks later, I saw him enter a home in my neighborhood, call the detective assigned to the case, and got him arrested and sent to prison. So all's well that ends well. Being in the game essentially my entire life, I'm well aware that not everyone is capable of employing lawful violence to stop illegal violence. But here's the thing. If your child was present at a location when criminal violence kicked off, Would you want me to save your child or let your child be seriously injured or killed? If your answer is that you'd want me to save your child, then why would you want laws in place that would prevent me from doing that? And there are millions of Americans like me out there. My point is that if you're beside yourself that most gun laws are going away, perhaps you should be looking at the issue in a different light. The government isn't going to stop your child from being injured or killed think Rob Elementary School. And if you aren't the kind of person who would be effective at stopping a violent criminal, why the hell would you want to disarm millions of Americans who are willing to stop them? Perhaps something to think about. We've been talking about the courts protecting the right to keep and bear arms, but that's not the only right the decisions of the courts have protected and continue protecting to this very day. You might find it intriguing to know that the U.S. Supreme Court has ruled repeatedly that you have an unalienable right to your own property, most particularly the right to the fruits of your labor, and that right can never be taken from you. It may further intrigue you to know that the U.S. Supreme Court has held repeatedly that the U.S. income tax is a tax upon the exercise of a privilege. So then, what is a privilege? In terms of taxation, it means government permission to do something that, absent the government's permission, 
would be illegal. Needless to say, an unalienable right is the exact opposite of a government-granted privilege. The court has also been crystal clear that rights may not be taxed. Hmm, isn't that interesting? Let's quickly bullet point these for clarity. Number one, the Supreme Court has ruled that the income tax is a tax upon the exercise of a government-granted privilege. Number two, your unalienable rights are the exact opposite of a government-granted privilege. Number three, the Supreme Court has said your labor and the fruits of your labor are unalienable rights. Number four, rights cannot be taxed. So, in light of that simple reality, can you explain to me why you pay income tax? By explain, I mean a rational explanation, something other than you've been told you have to. Let me ask you a question. Have you read a single word of income tax law? I don't mean words on a Form 1040 or some IRS letter. I'm asking you if you've ever read income tax law with your own eyes and know what it actually says. For 99.9% .9 of you, the answer is no. So then, not having read a word of income tax law, do you really imagine the government imposed a privilege tax on your unalienable right to the fruits of your labor? I ask because I'm the author of Income Tax Shattering the Mist, the best-selling book in America that indisputably proves the government has never done that. Income Tax Shattering the Mist shares 17 years of research in an easy-to-understand manner and reveals that Congress has never imposed the income tax on you, your labor, or the fruits of your labor, and reveals that by providing mountains of irrefutable, conclusive evidence. The fact of the matter is, you're paying income tax because you've been bamboozled. The government has been pumping out massive disinformation on the subject for 60 years, and you bought their bamboozled hook, line, and sinker. And of course, there's some fear involved as well. I want to rectify all of that for you. Your misconception concerning what tax law actually says about you and your labor, and do away with that fear. If you're thinking, it's hard to believe what you're saying is true, Dave, let me share with you that I haven't filed or paid in 30 years, and tens of thousands of people who've seen the law and facts with their own eyes by reading income tax shattering the myths have safely walked away from the government scam. And when I say it's a scam, what do you call Congress passing a tax that doesn't apply to ordinary working Americans, because the Constitution prevents that, but then the government turned around and mounted a massive 60-year disinformation campaign to falsely convince you that it applies to ordinary working Americans. Well, you may be able to think of all sorts of words for the government doing that. Scam is certainly one that fits perfectly. I'm currently running a special on income tax shattering the myths, but before I tell you about it, let's quickly hear what people have recently said about income tax shattering the myths. Mike wrote, quote, I've read Dave's books and both changed my life dramatically. I'm a lifelong reader and I can say both are hands down the best books I've ever read, period. Both stay on top of my desk for quick and easy reference and I consider them among my most prized possessions. And lest you think a book on income tax is dry and boring, quote, some light reading on my flight, 100 pages in, and I can't put it down. Can't put it down. Readers love income tax shattering them so much, I see comments in which they say they're reading it for the second, third, or fourth time. Not because they have to, but because they find it so enjoyable they want to read it again and again. 
I'm going to tell you about the special, but before I do, I need to mention my book, Body Science, because there is an option in the special to get an even better deal if you purchase Income Tax Shattering Mess and Body Science. I won't take up a lot of your time telling you about Body Science. Instead, I'll ask you a question. America leads the world in science and technology, including in the medical field. So, have you wondered why America is the most ill society not only on the planet, but in all of human history? Do you think that's a coincidence? I'm here to tell you it's not. Remember I mentioned a moment ago the government's massive 60-year disinformation campaign that's ongoing to this very moment? Well, guess what? The government and certain trillion-dollar industries have been doing the same exact thing for 60 years concerning nutritional physiology. And just like the front of the income tax, it's all about the money. They don't give a damn about you. If the American people being the most ill society in all of history is what it takes to put trillions of dollars in their pockets, well, that's a price they're willing to pay. I suppose the question then becomes, where do you stand on that? Do you want to know what they've done? How they've lied to make so many Americans incredibly ill? Or do you want to know the truth they've been hiding from you? If so, read Body Science. You'll be appalled at what you learn they've done and thrilled when you discover the truth about your physiology. Okay, so here's the special. For a limited time, you can get 15% off income tax shattering the mess. To get that 15% discount, use the coupon code OWNIT, all one word. I'll put the code down in the notes. If you purchase the bundle that includes income tax shattering the mess and body science, you'll get the 15% off income tax shattering the mess and you'll get free shipping. For the bundle, use the coupon code FREEBIE. I'll put the code down in the notes along with the link to the bundle. In the 13 years Income Tax Shattering the Mist has been out, I have never offered more than a 10% discount. So 15% is a great deal that likely won't come again. Not only will you learn what every American should know about the government's income tax scam, you'll also discover hidden physiological truths revealed in body science, such as how not to get cancer, heart disease, obesity, Alzheimer's, insulin resistance, hypertension, metabolic disease, and more. And if you already have some of those, Body Science will show you how to get rid of them. To get income tax shattering the mist and or Body Science, go to drreality.news, drreality.news, or just click the links down in the notes. Purchasing income tax shattering the mist and Body Science also supports my being here for you with these thought-provoking presentations. Please share this podcast everywhere. Thanks for being here. Take care.